Bibles to the book of Acts tonight, if you would, Acts chapter 9. I don't know if you noticed this morning in the uh, bulletin, if you noticed these things, but under the ushers, uh, you had four ushers listed, and Jeremy Evans listed twice. Did you see that? He, he, and he pulled it off. That's pretty amazing stuff right there. So uh, that was uh, interesting there, work around that. Acts chapter 9, we're still talking about the uh, conversion of Saul, or the tail end of it anyway, I, I know we've spent some considerable time here, but it's a major part of the New Testament, the conversion of a man like Saul of Tarsus. Uh, this was God doing the impossible, and God can still do the impossible. And so we want to focus on this again as we kind of look at the, uh, the uh, Ananias and his ministry toward him tonight. Uh, Acts chapter 9, we're going to start verse 19. Uh, talking about Saul, when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is, this, is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Verse 24, But their laying wait was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Father, I pray tonight you'd help us as we... Uh, do a little bit of review and then pick up this story where it continues. And may we, Lord, learn from you and learn from your word how we might better serve you as we especially look tonight at Ananias. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I want to jump back just a little bit to uh, verse number 13 when the Lord came to a man named Ananias in a vision. And Ananias answered in verse 13, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon on thy name. The Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And then we'll look in a minute Ananias' response. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, as we've seen, was a very religious man. But whenever you have religion without redemption, it produces resentment. And that was what filled the heart and life of Saul of uh, Tarsus. He had heard the truth. He had rejected it. He refused to believe on Jesus Christ, and he became enraged against those who did. And the sin in Saul's heart made him a ruthless and a cruel man, and he went around trying to do all he could to stamp out this new way, this Christianity, because he hated Jesus Christ and the gospel, and he did all he could to destroy it. We've looked at the miracle of Saul's conversion. We've looked at the manner of Saul's conversion. Uh, if you go back to verses 4 and 5, and he fell on the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, persecute, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. This is when Saul realized with this blinding truth that God and Jesus are one and the same. He asked, Who are you, Lord? And he, the answer was, I am Jesus. They were one and the same. Saul was obviously devastated. He was the world's most active killer and, and uh, persecutor of those who follows, uh, followed Christ and now instantly becomes a Christian. 
Not only that, he had to realize all this in a split second, and he had to realize that everything he had recognized up to this point, it was all a lie. Everything that he had concluded was truth, he now had to conclude uh, that it was not true at all. And that, he, By the way, we talked a little bit about this, but Saul very correctly came to the, even before he was a Christian, he realized you could not have Judaism and this Christianity at the same time. There had to be one or the other. One ruled out the other. He just chose to follow the wrong one and, follow, and uh, persecute the right one. And now he would do a complete 180. So he rightly realized you could not have both. We saw how he changed uh, instantly in that uh, answer to the who question. He then asked the what question in verse 6, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go in the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Instantly, Paul put the Lord, Jesus Christ, on the throne of his heart. God had put Jesus on the throne of the universe. Saul now put him on the throne of his heart. Lord, what will you have me to do? And he was there, verse 9 says, he was there three days. He was blind, he could not see. And uh, for without sight for three days, he neither did eat nor drink. Uh, his whole world had been turned upside down. And so now he is there. Uh, no doubt he's just praying. He's thinking. Uh, he's completely, uh, life is completely turned around. I don't think we can imagine uh, the inner turmoil that must have been going on in Saul's mind because he was a dedicated, don't, don't forget, he was not anti-God, he was anti-Jesus. And so he was dedicating his life in what he thought was the best uh, child of God, the best work of God that he could do. And now he finds out that he was persecuting the ones who were following the God that he thought he was serving. Oh, this would have given him incredible inner turmoil. Verse number 10, God called Ananias. Uh, now, the Ananias in Acts chapter 5 was a bad one, but this was a good one here. God has his servants ready to do his work. Here at Damascus was a believer who at the call of the Lord immediately says, Behold, I am here. I love that. Uh, I love that uh, song, Here am I, Lord, send me. Uh, this is uh, immediately God called. He says, I'm here. What do you need me to do? Now, we've never heard of him before except this incident right here. We never hear of him afterward. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know who he was. We don't know if he had a family. But the Lord knew all about him. And the Lord called on him and he answered the call. Instantly, he says, Behold, I am here, Lord. May we be ever as ready as Ananias was to do what the Lord bids us to do. What a blessing to have somebody like that. So God tells him, in verse 11, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas. So far, so good. I can do that, Lord. I know where that's at. I know where Judas is at. Very possibly, he knew who Judas was. And then he finishes for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. By the way, I like how the Lord says he prayeth there. Saul had been praying all his life, but now he's praying. There's praying and then there's praying. Paul now has the ear and the, the heart of the master, and he is now genuinely, probably for the first time in his life, he is genuinely praying. But the name would have fallen on Ananias' ears like an absolute thunderbolt. Saul of Tarsus. He, is he now to carry the precious gospel and present it to its most venomous opponent? That's what he's asked to do here. Ananias, because this is what we do. He had to let the Lord know, God, 
I'm sorry, Lord, you've made a mistake. I'm about to educate you. So here he says, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints in Jerusalem. Now, let's not be tough on Ananias. Imagine the situation that he finds himself in here. This is Saul of Tarsus, the Christian's worst enemy. Everyone knew someone. that Probably everyone probably had family members or friends that had been jailed or beaten or imprisoned or killed for the cause of Christ. And this guy was at the head of all of it, Saul of Tarsus. Damascus would be buzzing with the news that the posse was on the way. Saul in the lead. His very name would have terrified any Christian. And here, Ananias is told to go look him up. I'd like you to go find Saul of Tarsus. As though God didn't know who Saul of Tarsus was, he tries to tell him who he was. Uh, And again, we can't blame him. All of us would have probably been in the same boat as uh, Ananias was because uh, he was deathly afraid of this man. So this is kind of where we ended last week. I want to pick up here, uh, verse 15. The Lord again uh, reiterates the call, Go thy way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Oh, listen, friend, sometimes our most difficult tasks present the greatest opportunities. Think of the honor. Just think about the honor of being the man to take Saul of Tarsus by the hand and introduce him to the church. Uh, this is like the mouse letting the lion loose with Ananias coming and getting Saul of Tarsus. One of my greatest goals is not only to do great things for God in my life, but to influence someone else or to have a part in someone else going beyond what I can do for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Ananias had that opportunity. Uh, he is coming, able to come and take Saul and get him started. Saul is a chosen vessel, God said. He, God had determined the course of his life. All of Saul's life had been preparation for this moment. His birth into a family with Roman citizenship. His birth into a Hebrew home that involved the synagogue and the knowledge of the scriptures. His training as a rabbi. His obsession with Christianity. Of course, before this point it was to stamp it out. Now it would be to propagate it. He was a chosen vessel. Can I tell you tonight, all of us are chosen vessels. Each one of us has special talents and a temperament and upbringing and characteristics that God can use. God makes no two people alike, praise the Lord. Keeps it interesting, doesn't it? We have nothing to do with how much or how little ability we've got. Natural ability, I mean. We've got nothing to do with that. But we've got everything to do with what we do with it. And what are you going to do with the abilities and the talents that God's given you? So Paul was chosen to carry the name of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is what the Bible tells us. In fact, it was in that order. He was predominantly to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was far better equipped than Peter, John, James, uh, even Philip the Evangelist. Nobody had his intellectual gifts. No one had his educational background. No one had his strength of purpose. No one had his tireless zeal. Nobody had his cultural blending of Roman citizenship and the knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and, and Jewish, uh, all the training he had, all those things. Uh, Saul of Tarsus alone was the one that had what it took uh, to take by storm the Gentile world for Jesus Christ. Who else but Saul could have stormed Mars Hill or planted a church in Caesar's household himself, we find out later. Uh, this is Saul, then uh, would be Paul. 
Now, it's interesting in verse 16, the Bible says, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Years later, we won't turn there now. We've got another scripture we're going to turn in a minute, but in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28, Paul gives a catalog of his sufferings. He had been beaten and bruised by both Gentiles and Jews. He had been in prison. He had been stoned. He had been shipwrecked more than once. He had known danger, pain, hunger, thirst, uh, nakedness, cold. His body had been so ill-treated that he was chronically ill and needed the constant, uh, he was in constant need of a physician. Ananias had no need to worry anymore about Saul making the saints suffer. From now on, it was Saul who would do the suffering. He would repay in his own suffering all the pain he had inflicted on God's people. And to his dying day, he would have great remorse for what he had done to the Jewish church in its infancy. And uh, so Paul, it's interesting that God chose him to suffer. You know, some of us, I think, God chooses to suffer more than others. And uh, I, I, I think that one of the ways that we can look at suffering is it often enables us to have a great impact on other people. God has one son without sin. He has no son without suffering. All of us go through it, and some of us more than others, but Saul would make a great impact despite it. Verse 17, we find Ananias obeying. Uh, it's not in your Bible, but we can probably add the words heart-pounding to verse 17. Heart-pounding, Ananias went his way and entered into the house, putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Ananias obeyed God. He reached the house. He found the man he was meant to meet. Before him, would, uh, when he walked in the door and he saw, I mean, just think about the, the fear in his heart as he did this. He saw the man whose blood was covered with the blood of countless Christians. Uh, because whose hands were covered with the blood of countless Christians because of what he had done. He would have thrown Ananias in prison in a heartbeat several days before this. But now all is forgiven. Imagine that laying his hands on those blind eyes. In a voice, in a kind voice, he says, Brother Saul. The first contact that Saul had with the church was the kindly touch of a fellow believer's hand. The first words that he heard from another believer was that lovely word, brother. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be in the family of God? Saul had a new family. Brother Saul, he said. Must have went straight to Saul's heart. The next words he heard were the words of the Lord Jesus. Verse 18, And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith. And arose and was baptized. This is an expression of family loyalty in baptism. The word translated scales here is lepus. It occurs only once in the New Testament, and it's right here in this verse. Typically, this word was used in literature for the scales of a fish. So it seems like there was some kind of scaly substance on, uh, that covered Saul's eyes. Now it fell away, and he was able to see. Uh, Saul, the first sight he saw, was to look into the eyes and the face of a Christian brother. Again, what a blessing that would have been. He knew enough of the Christian life to know that he needed to identify 
himself with Christ and with God's people. So he was baptized. Now, baptism for a Jew was, and and I could say still is, a big step. Uh, Baptism for a lot of religions is a big step. I remember even when we left and and got saved out of the religion we were in, uh, in the Amish religion, it was one thing to leave, it was one thing to even go to a Baptist church, but when we got baptized, that's what severed the ties. That was the big deal. And here it was, I'm sure, for Saul as well. Uh, Relatives may tolerate a a family member who believes in Christ, but uh, often baptism will sever all ties. I remember when we ran a bus route in Lansing, Michigan, we reached a lot of uh, foreign kids, Hmong kids and different uh, foreign groups. And many of those kids uh, would get saved at camp or got saved at church. And the first thing I would do, uh, I worked with Children's Church there, and when I, uh, first thing I would do is I would go and tell the parents with the child, this is what your child did at camp, and it presented a way to give the gospel there and uh, an opportunity to do that. And so uh, I would give them that, and, and most of the time the parents were glad. Well, we're so glad that they gave their heart to Christ, and we're, we're glad. But when it came to baptism, it's a whole different story. And so Saul did that. I don't know to what extent Saul suffered the loss of his family. We don't know if his parents were alive. We don't know how many siblings he had. We do know in Philippians 3.8, he says, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I'm sure that probably included what family he had. When he made up his mind to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, identify with his new family, his heavenly family, then uh, it probably, uh, we realize it was more important than his human family, and it probably severed those ties. Baptism publicly proclaimed him a member of his new family of born-again believers, as it does us. We just saw last week, uh, someone gets baptized, it is a, it, 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 uh, is a public profession, and it identifies him with the born-again believers. Then we see an experience of family life in the brotherhood. Look at verse 19, when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Man, would I have loved to have been at that, those meetings. I mean, can you imagine people coming in the back door, kind of looking, is it true? Is that really Saul? And as they would sit down and he would give his testimony, man, I can just imagine what a time of rejoicing that would be. Uh, he broke his fast. Uh, he stayed in fellowship with those he once loathed, and now he loved them. Uh, Luke does not mention Paul's time in Arabia. If you'll turn to Galatians, though, Galatians chapter 1, we're just going to touch on this because this goes along with the timeline of what happened to Saul or or, or Paul next. He went to Arabia for three years. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 16. To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. So it seems here that Paul, anyway, he indicates that he was spent three years getting taught by Jesus himself. Verse 12, he did not confer uh, with, with uh, men, uh, but he uh, was taught by the Lord himself. Now this could mean directly more excuse me, more likely it was through the study of the Word of God. And he would now have to, of course, look at all that he knew in the Bible through a different lens and through the lens of Jesus being the Messiah. 
he needed time to work through the truth that he learned on the Damascus Road. So he goes to Arabia with the copy of his Old Testament in his bag, and he starts to study through uh, what God has to teach him through his word. It, by the time he returned uh, from that solitude, uh, his essential theology was formed. Uh, he had the great truths of Romans and Ephesians and Thessalonians in his heart. Romans is the truths of Christ's cross. Ephesians, he talks about the great truths of Christ's church. And Thessalonians, he talks about the great truths of Christ's coming. And so he had those things down. It was interesting. Later he would meet with Peter and review notes and they didn't disagree on anything. It's interesting that like the other apostles, uh, you know, to be an apostle, you had to have seen Jesus Christ, which Paul did on the Damascus Road. Like the other apostles, Paul studied with Christ for three years before he began his ministry. Uh, just like they did in person, uh, Paul did uh, here while he was in Arabia. So Paul was to be given, uh, was given some of the greatest revelation of truth ever written down. His gospel, he says, was not of man, not received from men. It was from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, though back in Acts, the Bible says he was certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Now, this is a wonderful evidence of genuine conversion. 1 John 3.14 And we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Listen, if you can't love the other children of God in the church, that says something about your relationship with the Lord. Amen? Uh, we ought to love one another. We ought to enjoy time with one another. And uh, so this is one of the evidences of genuine conversion. What a tremendous experience. You have this, this former wolf sitting down with the sheep, and they're just getting along. They're talking. They're getting to know one another. Just can't imagine the, the, the mind game that it would be on the people of God to actually come and sit down with this great persecutor which had feared them for so, or they had feared for so long. Verse 20, we see a new faith. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now the word straightway here leads me to believe that this happened before Paul's Arabian visit when he was gone for three years. Now the same original word um, immediately uh, is, uh, is in verse 18. Uh, you'll see, the, where is it? Oh yeah, verse 18. And immediately there fell from his eyes, it had been scaled. Same word as straightway, same original word. Uh, Saul, I believe went right up and uh, started to preach Christ in the synagogue. Uh, he was no one to sit still when there's work to be done. Seems to have wasted no time. And this is another picture that I would love to see. I would have loved to have been present for this meeting. News of his arrival caused a great stir. Here was the top prosecutor. He was the one that was going to arrest the Christians. He represented the Sanhedrin. He was armed with all kinds of arrest warrants. He had already demanded the full cooperation of the temple here. He would root out all heresy. The enemies of Christ were eagerly waiting for him to get there. It was a little odd because they had heard talk of some trouble on the way to Damascus and then several days he was missing. Uh, but here he was and now he was about to speak to them. The ruler of the synagogue would be ready to roll out the red carpet. It wasn't often that he had someone of Saul of Tarsus' status in his small town and Saul was an important man. And so he would be given the king's treatment. Every eye would be on him. Uh, some would look on him with approval. Others would look on him with fear. Saul would ask for the scriptures. He would read a passage. He would hand back the scroll. 
he would face the congregation. A hush would fall on everyone in the room as he was about to speak. And now they expected, no doubt, condemnation for this new sect, this new way. Uh, they would expect reasons, uh, his reasons for considering it heresy. They would res- uh, expect a denunciation against Jesus of Nazareth and these redneck fishermen who were out uh, promoting the truths of Jesus of Nazareth. There would be an announcement that we're going to stamp it out. We're going to do all that we can to stamp out these people. And there would be threats given to all those that aided them and who avoided him. So can you imagine the pure shock when Paul starts preaching Jesus to them? Starts preaching Christ. Maybe it was a joke. No, it's not a joke because now he starts proving that Jesus is the Son of God. Incidentally, this is the only time the term Son of God appears in the book of Acts. It is Paul's typical view of Jesus Christ. He was the Lord from heaven. Uh, He was the Son of God. This newly converted Saul delighted in proving from the Old Testament that Jesus indeed was Christ. And again, just stop and think for a moment the shock that would have rippled through that synagogue that day. This is Saul. In fact, it talks about it uh, in verse 21. They were amazed. Isn't this... I mean, this is the top terrorist, and he's now a Christian. Verse 21, but all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them, which call on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Paul's preaching caused an uproar. Damascus would, be, uh, would demand an explanation. By the way, this is why Saul would constantly give his testimony all throughout Uh, his writings, we see him give his testimony. Soon the whole city would be buzzing with the shocking news. I'm sure someone, some kind of messenger, uh, they didn't have iPhones yet, Uh, they hurried off to Jerusalem to tell Caiaphas and company what had happened to their favorite son. I'd have loved to be there for that meeting too. Caiaphas, you're not going to believe what we have to tell you. Saul of Tarsus. I mean, you just it's just an amazing thought of this transformation. Look at 22, but Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Uh, Saul grew quickly in his newfound faith. Again, Saul would have been very, very versed in Scripture. He just had to look at it during, uh, through a different lens now. And uh, this word for strength, he increased more in strength. It's the same word used in Romans 4.20 to describe the strength of Abraham's faith. It's again used by Paul in Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The word is in dunamo. The word dunamis uh, is the root word. We get our word dynamite from it. We're talking about the great power of God. And Saul was growing in this power. Uh, This is the strength that it's talking about. And the Jewish community community was confounded, the Bible says. Uh, Yes, I guess they would be. Uh, this, uh, by the way, that word for confounded, I've got it here, but it's a big old long word, soon, key, E-O, something like that. But the word is found already in the book of Acts, uh, back in the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.6. Now when this uh, was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. Same word, because every man heard them speak in his own language. The same now happens in Damascus. The word means to stir up. And I guess they would be stirred up when Saul was preaching Christ. Saul erupted uh, on this Jewish community in Damascus like a one-man Pentecost. 
and they were confounded. Now, I read this, and I was thinking about this, I was looking at this this week, and it's a point of conviction for me, and really for all of us as a church. What does the city know of our coming and going? What does our, uh, in our own city, what difference do we make to the bar owners, the city council, uh, business owners? How do we affect the propagators of false religion? What stir do we cause in a university that teaches godless humanism? Do we make a difference? I tell you, when Saul went into any town, he made a splash. He made an impact. And uh, because he was so vocal, he could not be ignored. The whole town knew he was there. Riots broke out. Uh, Jews and pagans were infuriated. Uh, there was an immediate storm center wherever Saul, or, I mean, Paul went. Uh, he would shake whole communities. Here at Damascus, we have a foretaste of what it's going to be like in his life as an apostle. What caused the stir here at Damascus was the fact that Saul was proving that this was the Christ. It's interesting that the mantle has fallen from Stephen now to Paul, or Saul. Or I told you before, I get the names, the same person. <laughs> its uh, name hasn't switched yet exactly, but uh, fallen on Saul here. No one's able to refute his arguments. Remember, it was just a short time before this, Saul standing in front of Stephen and He's hearing all that Stephen says. I believe he was there. He was there for the stoning, so I assume he was there for the preaching of Stephen. And the Bible says that no one could refute Stephen's arguments. Well, now here's Saul. No one can refute his either. There's a new faith. There's also a new fight. Look at verse 23. After many days were filled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying in wait was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. I I think it's amazing uh, how quickly... Uh, he's their hero, now they're looking to kill him. Uh, he used to kill Christians for them and with them, and now they're ready to kill him immediately. We don't know who was first behind the conspiracy to silence Saul by assassination. Maybe it came from the Damascus synagogue. Maybe it came from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe it came from some of the hotheads in the Jewish community. But the people that were now after Saul's head were once his close confidants. And instantly they turned on him. Uh, At any rate here, a watch was set at the city gates to make sure that Saul did not escape. He had, had to be silenced. I've always found it interesting what a great threat truth is uh, to religion. And what a great threat truth is, well, it's a greater threat than sin. I'll give you an example. I think I've given this before, but bears repeating. I, I had about two years ago, my two first cousins, my mom's sister's kids, brother and sister, at the same time left, uh, ran away from the, uh, their Amish community, from their families. And uh, the girl, my cousin, I don't even know her name, the boy's name was Jerry, but uh, the girl, uh, my cousin, went uh, into the world and, they, and she did what many of them do, went absolutely crazy. I mean, into drugs and shacking up with whoever would have her and parties and just living a very sinful life. While my cousin Jerry, uh, he made his way to my parents. They led him to Christ. He started going to church. Uh, He was faithful to church. He got a good job. He started to set himself up and started to make something of himself. And he was living a a decent life. My my aunt and her husband wrote letters to both of them. And to the girl, they wrote a letter. You know, you're welcome at home anytime. We love you. We want you back. Uh, you, one of the big things is you have to dress like them when you come back. 
They said, you don't even have to dress Amish. You can just come and visit us anytime that you would like. We want to have you back and express their love and sadness at her leaving. To my, my cousin Jerry, a different letter was received by him. Essentially, you are dead to us. You may never talk to us, never write us, never come home. You're completely and utterly dead to us. I remember when I first heard that, I was just kind of surprised. Why would you be so hard on the one who's doing right or trying to do right and be so easy on the one who's obviously living like the devil? And the reason is this right here. Sin is not a threat to religion. Truth is. Truth is a huge threat to religion. And so that has to be stopped. That has to be cut out. That has to be removed from us. We cannot have truth. Not only They don't recognize it as truth, but that's what the threat is. And so we see here as well, Saul had to be silenced. Verse 25, Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. They're in a thousand years. They'd have never thought two weeks ago they'd be helping Saul of Tarsus escape. His buddy's not trying to kill him. God changes situations, doesn't he? Boy, he can change uh, all of our circumstances. Saul went in through the door and out through a window in a basket. This ended here the first effort of his to evangelize his own people. Verse 26, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, now uh, presumably this is a three-year period here in between this time, because uh, according to what we see in Galatians, but when he came to Jerusalem... He essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Not surprisingly, uh, he was not uh, greeted by enthusiasm. This is Saul, after all. We can imagine how the news was received by the Sanhedrin. Now, everybody hated him. The Christians didn't want to have anything to do with him, and obviously the others were trying to kill him. Uh, One and all the believers shunned him, naturally thinking, uh, he was still some, uh, an enemy. I wonder what happened to Peter's spirit of discernment. Why didn't John befriend him, take him home, introduce him to Mary, the Lord's mother? Where was Andrew? Of all the apostles, Andrew was always one to reach out and bring outsiders to Jesus. What happened to Nathaniel, of whom Jesus said, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile, John 1.7. How disappointing that none of the apostles are willing to even consider the testimony of Saul. The Bible says they were all afraid. It says they believed not. As we read this section in Acts, we could have a bit of a feeling, a little bit of a disappointment in the disciples. Why did God have to raise up a Stephen and a Philip and now a Saul of Tarsus? Seems to have been an almost reluctance on the part of the apostles to fulfill the great commission in Acts 1.8. One of the deacons had to become the first martyr. Uh, another one of the deacons had to blaze a trail to Samaria. The same deacon made first contact with the Gentile world of the Ethiopian. And now another church member had to take initiative in making a friendly overture to Saul. We're going to meet him next week. What a blessing he was. His name's Barnabas. And we'll see and, and talk about him and, and break down what he did next week. What a tremendous encouragement he was. But uh, it's a tremendous lesson for us here in this conversion of Saul, one of the greatest uh, initial truths we can take from it is that God can save anyone. Amen? No one is beyond the gospel. God can reach the stoniest heart. If you're praying for somebody right now that you've been maybe praying for for years, God can reach them. You can't. 
You can do nothing to change someone's heart, but God can. And then when God does reach them, let's receive them. Amen? Let's uh, open our hearts to them. It was a sad thing that Saul got saved, and of all people, God's people are, uh uh-uh, not having him to our church. We're not having him in. Uh, I mean, it's understandable why they were afraid. It's understandable why there was a lot of fear there. But uh, that believed not is a tragedy. Let's have faith in what God can do. Amen? Father, we thank you.